Hi there, welcome to another episode of the EcoSend podcast. I'm the host, James, and every week we're speaking to other inspiring people in the world of climate, whether they're building businesses, investing in them, working in fields like marketing, or dedicating their whole career to a climate cause. We're speaking to people to build up our own understanding of what we can all be doing to make the planet just a little bit better. Uh, The hope is that every week, We speak to people and we learn more about building a more sustainable, more climate conscious business. And hopefully by doing that ourselves, we're going to share some of that wisdom with you, the dear listener. Each episode is about 30 minutes long, some a bit more, some a bit less. And we'll try to bring one out every single week. Uh, This is now series two, and we're thrilled to be bringing you a fantastic episode today with Hampus Jacobson. And Hampus is a general partner at Pale Blue Dot a seed stage climate tech VC investing in reducing and reversing the effects of climate change and preparing for a new world. I had an amazing chat with Hampus. This episode is a little bit different because we sort of got rolling into a pretty casual conversation about all sorts around the world of investing, around VCs, around how they think about funding ideas, and particularly in the world of climate. For the most part, I let Hampus speak because I think, I'm sure once you've heard this, you'll see why. Hampus has so much wisdom to share. I didn't want to waste too much energy or taking time from you listening to Hampus. So I really hope you enjoy the show. Would love to hear what you think. And yeah, let's get to it. I clearly don't think I'm going to need to say too much on this episode because I feel like I could just listen to you all day. What I want to make sure is I focus on things that you really feel would be valuable things to talk about. As you said, it's easy to ask some (laughs) really stupid questions, but uh, our listeners are not necessarily au fait with the world of VC investing and seed investing. So I think there's certainly an element of just making sure people understand some of that. But Pale Blue Dot is your general partner there. and. I feel like there's so many things we could talk about within this remit of climate conscious investing. And I feel like there's stuff we could talk about around any of the companies you've invested in and how you've made decisions to invest in those, how much you work with those. What are the challenges of working in the climate world? And are there trade-offs versus not dealing with climate at all? Is there Mm -hmm. a question around revenue profit versus greater good for the world? I think there are a couple of things. I think that if you take them, there are two things that I think intersect that I think are very interesting. I think you have one which is climate and one which is venture. And they intersect at a very interesting point. And I think that if we just take that from above, what I find very fascinating is that if you start with climate, I think that it is extremely obvious or should be obvious that this is the biggest challenge humanity has ever had. Like so far, we have been on a trajectory where we've always tried to figure out a way to utilize more energy out of something. That's like been the whole thing by like extraction. So we've been like, we've, we've gone from like cooking our food, we've gone to agriculture, right? Like all these things we go from, it used to be, I wasn't around, but it used to be that you killed an animal and you ate it 
and that was what you did, or you gathered plants. And that's a very inefficient way, right? And I think that then we can humanity figure out better and better ways of like heating our food, like, you know, process more energy out of it or planting stuff so we didn't have to move around or we extracted like oil out of the ground, which is essentially compounded energy, right? And then and nuclear and so forth. And I think we've been on this trajectory and it, like, it looks like a hockey stick. If you look at amount of kilojoules that you get as a human body, or if you think about the car, essentially it is like a body extension, right? So we've been on this amazing trajectory. And the thing is, the weird thing that we haven't realized is that we become very myopic in what we measure. Like we measure the output per dollar or whatever you want to say. Mm. And that's the way of thinking about it. And we actually don't think about all these other externalities that happen around it. So is there enough of this material in the ground? Or what happens when you over fertilize? Or what happens when you actually burn oil? Like it goes up in the skies. And I think that it's only the last like 30, 40 years that this has been even a topic, right, at all. Before that, it was ridiculous. Yeah. And it's interesting because a lot of people, it's very hard. I find it very interesting. It's very hard to hate on the oil industry in the 1950s because the oil right. industry and the coal industry, they got us here. Without it, like, none of us would be alive. We would not be sitting in the houses. Like, it would never yeah. work, right? And the same thing with many other things. And I think that now, the last years, it's been very obvious that, okay, we have to get a lot more efficient. Otherwise, it won't work. And, and I think that if you look at it, I think that they're, three different ways of solving it, three different kind of categories. And then there are three different ways of solving it. So I'll just go through that. And then if you look at the three different problems, I would say you have inequality problem, you have infrastructure problems, and you have innovation problems. So inequality problems are, if you think about it, it's very obvious. The global north is spewing a lot of energy like in the sky. The global south is not. They don't have the same energy production. Therefore, they, like it's way harder. And then also, because they live closer to the equator, they're being hit by all of the droughts, the heats and the floods and everything. So there's a vast inequality, just geographically. Then there's, of course, you have the same lens that hits on ethnicity, on gender, on every single thing. Because I think that if the world is harder, if you're a white Ivy League dude in a mansion, it's not that actually much worse. But mm. if you're a, a, like a poor person in Haiti, like you don't actually have the margins. So that's like a massive lens of how do we as humanity solve this problem? And then I think secondly, if you think of this as an infrastructure problem, we have massive amounts of stuff that we just need to replace. Like anything from electrical cars to how we produce energy to how we produce food, which are technically they're like infrastructure. We kind of know how to do it. There's just a humongous amount of atoms that need to be replaced and moved and removed. And the same interesting thing, carbon capture, some of the carbon capture technologies are infrastructure problems. Like we know how to do it. It's just like, you just need to deploy this now to an extreme extent and then find an economical model how to do it. And then the third kind of problem is an innovation problem where you look at these problems and you're like, we actually don't know how to do this. Or we don't know how to do it in like an efficient way or a costly way or something like that. And venture only solves that third bucket. So whenever somebody says, why is venture capital not looking more at replacing asphalt? The thing is, well, there are replacements. The problem is there are definitely like innovation problems because asphalt is a pretty miraculous material like cement. (laughs) But the thing is like, if you start thinking about it, if you actually just want to replace it, that becomes not actually an innovation problem. It becomes a massive capital deployment problem. And so like, I think that's one lens to look at problems and ask yourself, is this problem inequality, infrastructure, or innovation? And then I think when you actually then boil down to saying, okay, philosophically, how do we as humanity want to solve the problem at all? Hmm. I would say it's a Venn diagram of three circles right now. So I would say they have the green camp, the red camp, and the blue camp. And the green camp are like, we have to change our behaviors. It's essentially the icon for it is Greta Thunberg. It's fly less, <laughs> eat less, do less. I mean, like, just don't destroy the planet anymore. Please stop, 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 stop. And then you have the blue camp, which I would say is like Bill Gates, which is 
we can just innovate ourselves out of this. We just like create nuclear energy. There's no reason actually we can still fight. We're going to figure it out. And then you have the third camp, the red camp, which is like, we actually need to change the incentive system. And the economical system is actually geared towards away. And that's where you've started seeing these like, Web3 project that people are saying, oh, maybe the forest should own itself. And stuff. <laughs> What's very fascinating is that I think neither of these are perfectly right, because I think that it really depends on what problem you have, just as like if it's an innovation infrastructure or inequality problem, like some of these solutions, they perfectly match. And some of them are very hard to match. It's just like, I don't think you can solve this problem with technology because it is like essentially an unfairness problem. So, so I think if you start by that lens, and I think that for me, at least, most other problems we have on the planet are essentially rearranging chairs on the Titanic. Like, <laughs> That's an uplifting ready. thought there. <laughs> no, but if you start thinking about it, like I have a very hard time when I meet a startup who's saying like, we're doing this amazing new marketing automation system thing in a jingy. It feels like, is market automation one of those problems that I think we have as a planet? No. Do we have a problem that we need to get people to buy stuff faster? No, not really. But you could say, hey, we have inefficiencies. So like, I'm not saying like these people are evil or anything, but I think that if you start <laughs> thinking about it, we have a massive problem and we should spend time on focusing on that. But at the same time, if you think about you're a 22-year-old or you're a bank or whatever you are, or you're a government official, your problem is in the now. Like either you want a job and a career, you're the 20 year old, or you're the bank, you actually want to return, you need to make money for other people because that's your fiduciary responsibility, or you're a government official and you're essentially biggest problem is actually getting people employed and happy, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody says, oh, CO2 emissions are on the rise or methane or whatever it is, you're just thinking, do I have a proxy, which is my goal, creating more unemployment for the people in my constituents? Can I do that while also solving this long-term goal? So it's very hard. So I understand people who postpone these problems because they have a short-term problem they're trying to solve on their own. And they actually don't see themselves as the Messiah or somebody who is part of a bigger <laughs> journey because, you know, they want to get their kids to college or something. So I think that's a super fascinating thing. And then I think that if you cross that with venture, what I think is so interesting about venture is that venture is an extraordinary machine to fund and create innovation. Like we have found different ways of creating innovation, like universities create stuff, right? Of course, and you have government funded stuff, you have focused resource organizations. All of these are essentially people that are in discovery mode. Like none of them are, if you look at explore versus exploit, like the computer algorithm style of thinking about stuff, mm -hmm. all of research, all, like when we say research, we usually think explore. So people go out there and they turn around stones and they try to figure out something. The interesting thing with venture is venture is an amazing way of doing exploit. Exploit is a, like a negative <laughs> connotation word, yeah. but I think it's actually like applied is a positive word. So what venture does is like, hey, you figured out a way to do synthetic air fuels. And given the fact, if you would get like a hundred million dollars, I think you would be able to get to a point where the unit economics of this would work. And then we can replace fuels and you would be a, a genius. And like, of course, I would be really wealthy because I funded you, right? And then the cool thing about venture versus banks is that banks don't like risk. So a bank's job is to make sure that they don't lose money. They're on the risk mitigation end of it. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing with a venture fund is the venture fund is the opposite because the mantra venture fund is like you can only lose your empty. You can only lose how much money you put in, which means that you're essentially just betting on stuff to work. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, it's fine. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Which is like, think about how few times in life we have that opportunity to have that attitude to be, I'm going to do 35 things. I want three to really work. Mm -hmm. I want five to kind of work and the rest, it's okay if they don't work at all. And I think that like we can apply that lens on this with a really fascinating thing.
And I think that most people really don't think about that amazing vehicle that venture is if you apply mm-hmm. it that way, like what you actually can do with it. And I think that the weird thing about venture is that dynamic, which means that what people do wrong is that they present ideas that are good for venture capitalists. And the thing is that good ideas are actually not what venture capitalists want. <laughs> like venture capitalists about sorting out is this good crazy or bad crazy. <laughs> Like you only as a venture capital fund, you're only interested in stuff that potentially could be humongous. And I think what's fascinating, what people really don't understand is the fact that if you rank the best to worst outcome for venture capital fund. So if, if we invest in a company that is amazing, that is, of course, the second best for most normal people, right, is doing something which is really good. And the worst is doing something which fails within two years, like for normal people, right? Like it's kind of obvious. You want to do something amazing, something which is solid and not something which is bad. That makes sense. (laughs) The strange thing for VCs, it's that the two bottom ones have flipped order. So for us, it is like the amazing we want. Next thing, please disappear within 24 months. (laughs) And please do not, for Christ's sake, survive (laughs) and be around for 10 years and like build a company. Because then you're constantly taking the venture capital fund's time. You're constantly not doing something else amazing because you're an amazing individual. So you should be something amazing. And it's so funny because when one is pitching their idea to venture capital fund, you're thinking like a human, of course. And if you're (laughs) thinking like a human, you're thinking, I want to remove the risk for you. And I'm not going to say something crazy because then you're not Mm going to do it. But the thing that you should do is you should really distill the last drops of crazy out of it and say, I think we can do this it's like one in a hundred that it works. Because for VCs, it's much better if you can say, I think we can build fusion reactors in space and beam down the energy to planet Earth, than that you say, we can actually make wind farms 6% more efficient. Because for a VC, 6% more efficient wind farms, it's kind of obvious that that would work. Yeah. Which means there's a thousands of competitors, it's impossible to build a monopoly, it's impossible to build a crazy big company about it, unless you're an infrastructure company, because if mm-hmm. you're one of those, yes, you can build a great company, but VCs can't fund infrastructure funds. So it's really interesting that when you see the crossing of those, I think it's so fascinating. And then the last point in the crossing, which I find so interesting, is that in climate, if you look at innovation again, one of the biggest problems we have to look at is additionality. So mm-hmm. should you, I mean, there are we have figured out plenty of ways to do something, but if you want to do it, is it done already? If you want to put money in something, it, are you actually just, again, rearranging chairs here? Or are you just like, oh, okay, now we're replacing this one, that thing. It doesn't really matter. Like it's innovative, but it actually doesn't really matter because the previous solution wasn't that bad and so on and so forth. The fascinating thing is that venture is obsessed with being quote unquote contrarian because <laughs> you, your job is to find crazy, right? <laughs> So my job is to find crazy and separate good crazy from bad crazy, (laughs) which means that for me, if I find something with low additionality, it is essentially something which is good. So my job is to find something with high additionality, which means that it's high, quote unquote, contrarian, because it's new, it's different, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be interesting for me. What I find so so interesting is climate tech is the ultimate intersection, because we want something which has really high contrariness and really crazy potential of being huge or disappear because otherwise it wastes resources. Mm. Climate is a problem where it's very urgent. We need very high additionality and we need something that works very big. Otherwise it doesn't matter. And it needs to work very quickly, which means that if you have smart individuals to spend their time on something, which might not work, it's better that they just stop doing it in two years and do something else with their time. But if they're on a trajectory to actually replace oil, 
please grow it as fast as you technically can. <laughs> and that's crazy because think about how few industries you have that perfect thing where, yeah. oh my God, the more you grow that part, the better is for them and vice versa. Yeah. And therefore, anybody who comes to me and says, okay, so climate tech, is it impact first? Is it revenue first? What is it? I would say the crazy thing is that they're linked. Like yeah. we need companies that intrinsically <clears throat> are quote unquote good for the world. And that what they do is not a tax. Like it's not that they sh sell a shoe and every 10th shoe they sell, they donate a shoe. Because the problem is then you have a new board, a new management, and they say, why don't do every 100th shoe, right? We're still a good company. It's nice for doing donations. We need a thing where we get people to not eat meat. We get people out of cement and steel. We get people to transport themselves without fossil fuels, so on and so forth, right? And the cool thing is that means that when they do this thing, it actually is nothing, no impact, because they're producing it without energy or whatever, or it actually reverses the problem when they're doing it. And that means that for us, when they do this thing, then the technical term is scale the shit out of it, <laughs> which is exactly what venture runs. So like, I think as a base model of thinking what we're doing, I think that's how we're thinking about stuff. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Amos. That was, I feel like this is the least I've ever spoken on an, an episode of this podcast. That was absolutely phenomenal. I, I feel like I myself as an entrepreneur sort of thinking, wow, how, like, what do I do now? <laughs> what do I do? When you're thinking about, there's so much life advice in there as well as business advice and ways to think about the climate too. And I think anyone listening might be thinking for so many areas there that could impact their own life on what you've just said. I guess I, I'm fascinated there by traditional investing is prioritizing that revenue outcome, I guess. And is that ever a big conflict then when those two meet? You know, I guess it is very convenient if someone does reinvent cement and, and that I'm sure would be a very valuable thing. But is there ever a question of like, it may be successful in that very short pace of time for the innovation piece, but the revenue model, the business model is delayed somewhat? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the edge cases that we find are ones that we see that this problem needs to be solved, but we can't see how the externality can be priced. So I think that our favorite kind of companies, I sometimes say this to the chagrin of my co-founders, but I think that my favorite kind of companies are the ones where the client is a climate denier. That's my favorite startup. Like <laughs> one of our startups reduced the energy needed to build cold storage when you know store food and stuff with 40%. And it is like 10% of the budget of most of the big companies that store food or vaccines. Another company reduces the energy needed to make steel, like with massive amount of numbers. Another company helps to figure out risks when you're looking at property for climate risks. I think that right. all of these things is that the customer they actually don't have to believe in climate change. They just have to care about their own bottom line. They know that they're going to be fired if they're, you know, like if they're, or on the positive side, they might get promoted if they save costs, decrease risk, increase revenue. So I think that those are the companies where it's extremely easy to see how you actually can extract part of the of profit and you make a company that is economically sustainable and can grow. Mm -hmm. The hard ones are whereas like the value you're creating is something where you're actually looking at the externality. Like you're saying, we're sucking down carbon from the sky and we're making this dust and this dust, the carbon can never leave it. Like it's amazing. Mm. And now people are saying, that's well done, applause. <laughs> what do you want to do with that dust? 
And you're like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what we're going to do. That's great. So I think those companies are really interesting or companies that actually look at, for example, the inequality problems where you can see, ah, this is amazing. You actually help the people that are hit the worst. But how do you find a business model to do that? Um, and those are the edge cases where we have to scratch our heads quite a lot. And yeah. some of those cases, we actually just believe, we just have to, like the only thing that we can have more conviction on than anyone else in the world is that we believe climate change is real. So when we look at some companies, we actually just say that part will need to be priced. So like <laughs> we, could, we could do it, right? Whereas other funds, they could look at, like we invest in a company that measures biodiversity. Mm. Biodiversity, it's invaluable, but it also doesn't have a value, like a price. Mm. So it's really, really hard, but it's very obvious for people to understand that if we destroy biodiversity, we're all gone. Like to, to the degree that people don't even understand, if we would kill sharks, on planet Earth. Like if we were to click a button and all sharks would die, we would all be gone in 100 years. Because sharks, like they're part of the ecosystem and web of life. And if they disappear, one more species will pop up, you know, yeah. like the Australian rabbits yeah. and foxes kind of level <laughs> yeah. of stuff. And those are the ones where, back to your question, is like those are the ones when we look at it and just say, how on Earth can we figure out a way that this company can be financially huge and economically sustainable? And that's really hard. There's one very interesting, fascinating thing about the different venture fund and between the quote unquote bank. And that mm. is that venture funds are looking for what usually called this a deep J curve or like a J curve. We are happy if a company loses money, loses money, loses money, loses money, start, like turns around and now they like they make more money than they lose, but they still historically they've lost more money than they made. And then they start making, making more money. And suddenly they hit the point where now they have like summed up, made more as much money as they have spent. And now they're actually, you know, on the positive part of the curve. And I think that for a bank, when they look at that curve, the part under the curve of how much money they need to like have a credit line or whatever you call it, mm. needs to be very small because that's a big risk that the company would default. We have the opposite. We're fine with it going down as long as it goes up to the sky. <laughs> and that's, I think, is really fascinating because that means that if somebody says, we will be cash flow positive in one year, that could be a negative thing for us. Because then we're asking, hey, could you be more ambitious? Like, you know, get the bow even sure. further back. Because it's fine with us if you have to spend 6 million or 10 million or 20 million. Mm. So because otherwise you're building like a consultancy company or, or a studio. That's, that's not going to change me in the universe. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating flipping it around because I think a lot of people listening will be, you know, as you said at the start, thinking like a, a human and not that investors are not humans, just the way the Very. mind shift that, that it's, but it makes so much sense when you, especially when you put it as eloquently as, as you do, Hampus. I think about it this way as well. I think that what I meant with as a human, I think that if you think something it's about something as a human or as humanity, it's very big. Yeah. yeah. It's the same thing. I think that if you're a government official, if you're a politician, you should not be th thinking like a quote unquote human. I mean, you should be human. You should think about human mm. suffering and other people, but you need to think about stuff as a system. You need to look at it and say, I need to create a lot of jobs. I need to create safety. And I think for me, the role of government is to remove unluck. That is like your, your job is to remove, remove unluck. Unluck. unluckiness. That's okay, like your yeah. job. Yeah. Like, and I mean, I'm Scandinavian. So I really think equality is really important. And I think that government's role is really to have a veil of ignorance and say, I don't know if what gender you are, where you're born, what your education is. If you are in my country or if you're in my region, I want you to have a good life, right? Mm -hmm. So I want you to remove any kind of luck that comes from genetics or location or, or age or anything, right? That's my job. And it's really complicated because that means that in part of me, I have to be thinking about the old person and like she's walking up the stairs. Can you have wheelchairs here or whatever? That's really important. And but other hand, you also need to think as a system to think, 
can this system efficiently make people safe and like feel comfortable? Do you talk to neighbors and stuff like that? And I think venture capital is the same thing, right? Venture capital is like, is a system. Mm. It's a system of betting on really bold innovations that should work or go away. And I think humans, we don't think about that way because it's your mm. life. Yeah. And I think that one of the things you need to rewire there is you need to rewire people's fear of failure. Because if you take anybody who's done a PhD and you go out to them and you say, you did a PhD, that was amazing, I loved it. Did everything you worked on, was that like perfect? You know, every single thing you took on during a PhD was like bullseye. They will just laugh at you. It's like, no, you don't understand. You spend 89% of your time like turning around stuff that won't work. <laughs> and sometimes that actually is a part of your thesis that you prove that these things don't work and that's great. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, interesting. So the falsification of stuff had a value, right? But if you would go to somebody in a normal career and say, how much time did you spend doing stuff that were duds and failed? Mm. They were like, I don't want to talk about it. I did this job interview about the other parts, right? <laughs> so we had to rewire. I think that we have to realize that if you go to Netflix now and scroll what things you want to see, if Netflix only recommends stuff to you that it's 100% sure that you will not dislike, it's not going to be a good algorithm. So Netflix shows you 80% that it's fairly sure that you will like, oh, the next episode of the podcast, like the series you're watching. But then 20% of the time, it shows you stuff that it's like, let's try Gilmore Girls. And you're like, <laughs> Gilmore Girls? What just <laughs> happened here, right? And the reason it's doing so, it's the only way it can discover new stuff for you is spending time in that explore mode. And it's because mm -hmm. it doesn't cost you anything. You won't get crazy mm -hmm. irritated that it shows you Gilmore Girls. But the problem is when we think about our own careers, we're so afraid of doing those one sidesteps that might be wrong. Instead of thinking, I should be discovering tons of stuff to maybe hit that one thing, which is like my ikigai jackpot. Because I think most people think success means you're wealthy on a yacht or something. <laughs> success is not wealthy on a yacht. Success is the Japanese expression, which is you're doing something you feel like is, you know, you feel great about doing. You feel you do something which other people find valuable when you do it. And then uh, what's the third one? Valuable. And then you do something which you're good at. Sorry. And yeah. it's interesting because yeah. the problem is that many people actually ignore that first part. They do something they're good at that people pay them to do, but they don't get an inner fulfillment of doing. Yeah. Yeah. And that means you should just move on. <laughs> fold, move on, fold, move yeah. on, fold, move on. And one day you're going to find the thing where you realize I would do this independently if people paid me to. Yeah. And then you found it. Yeah. I didn't think we'd get onto the definition of success and uh, finding people's inner fulfillment. It's got so much deeper than I thought it would have us, but I, I feel like it's all so connected though. And I don't, I don't know if I've got a fully formed question here, but I'm just thinking if I was a, 20 something person right now and th wanting to go on some sort of entrepreneurial journey that can have a big dent in the world. What would you have any advice for that person? Would it be come talk to you or would it be go do, like, are there things that you feel that are lacking that you haven't seen? I think that there, there are three things I would spend my time on. I think one is just sharpening my tools. So one yeah. is just figuring out how I spend my time, how I spend my focus, how I'm efficient, how I'm a nice person, like all of the things that means that whenever I'm doing the thing I'm doing, I'm actually doing it well. So I think, for example, Atomic Habits is a great book about how you spend your time. I think Good to Great is a great book of thinking about actually how to build stuff. Brenna Brown's books are really good about vulnerability. They're really good books about thinking about how to hone your system. 
just to think mm. about uh, algorithms to live by is an amazing book really how to think about stuff structurally as, as a person so i think that there's so many great books and podcasts and stuff about actually how to sharpen your tools and build the panoply of stuff you carry around with you but i think that means you can be an auditor an entrepreneur or, or whatever like you can be a gardener you can be anything like it's just about like doing the thing you're doing and that's that's really good and i think one part and i would actually spend significant amount of time doing that I think one of the problems we have with the education system is our education system is very focused on skills and mm -hmm. not focused on sharpening your fundamental tools. But the weird thing is that education systems try to get you to learn how to focus, but they yeah. do it indirectly, right? They yeah. ask you, can you please memorize all this Shakespeare wrote? <laughs> and that's great because what, they don't actually care about you remembering Shakespeare whatsoever. But the system wants you to learn how to focus, right? That's what it wants you to learn. But I think that the same time we recognize that, we can actually look at the educational system and we can say, if you're a student, I mean, you can just say, ah, so previously I thought I don't like maths or I think history is meaningless. But if I see this purely as a sharpening of my tools, it's amazing because that means the subjects I suck at, they're great trainers for me. It's kind of like you have weak upper body muscles and you go running all the time, you should go to the gym and practice those muscles you're weak at because that's going to get so much happier in life, right? And then the, the things you're great at, you feel like, whoa, I'm so good at this. That means, <laughs> hey, spend more time on it because now you can sharpen your skills to be at the edge of it, right? So I think one thing I always think about myself, if I'm bad at it, should I just stop doing it immediately and get away from it because I'm incompetent, I'll never get there? Or should I actually lean in and be like, can I get myself to par because it's going to be so good for my self-confidence, but also my base skills? That's one part. The other thing I would look at is I'm going to try to find the part where I can apply myself. And I'll get back to that. And the third thing is I would surround myself with ambitious peers. Everybody knows that you become like your five peers. Mm -hmm. So the headache is that if you grew up in a place where nobody's ambitious and nobody cares about the planet and everybody essentially just spend their life hanging out and doing nothing, the problem is it's extremely hard for you to not and that's why I think it's really fascinating. The people that are black in a white community or they're from an ethnic background or they're immigrants or they're gay or they're already an outsider. Or they're like back in the 90s, they were computer geeks. So what's so amazing is if you are not in the in-group, you have to search for your peers. It's an amazing opportunity to actually look at life and say, how do I find my peers? And it's strange enough so that the highest risk for you is you grow up in a super comfortable life with somebody who you think are your peers, but they're actually not your peers. Instead of you feeling, I'm not finding my people. And I think one thing I always think about myself is if I'm ever in a room where suddenly I get that jolt feeling in my body where these are my people, I really have to pay attention and try to spend more time in this room. And it can be like me playing a board game with friends. It can be like me listening on a podcast. I don't even have to interact with these people. I just listen to podcasts and be like, these are my people. Yeah. I just spend more time with doing that thing because that's going to make me mold myself mm -hmm. into that frame better. And then back to category two, where do I apply myself? The thing about that, that is so complicated because that has to do with your skills and your mentality and your style and everything. But it also has to do with extreme randomness of life. So if you were Bill Gates and you grew up in a world where computers just came around and you happen to be slightly kind of focused as a person, I don't know if you want to call it like Asperger's autism, autistic <laughs> or whatever, but you're a very focused person. Like he was so lucky to grow up in that place. And so was almost every person you know that you find extremely successful is they were just randomly at the right place at the right time. And the interesting thing is that we should all search to find that place. 
and and part of it is figuring out i think for me there's a quadrant of life to think about a bit is that i think about it as bread first or depth first and i think about it as if you want to be driving or if you want to be enabling so like you have these two by twos now so bread first depth first so bread first is like you want lots of opportunities depth is you want one opportunity and you want to be great at it the headache is are you mostly afraid about being called out not knowing what you're doing <laughs> or are you mostly a FOMO person where you feel like, oh, no, I'm on the wrong boat? <laughs> so if your fear is I'm on the wrong boat, you should be breadth first thinking. And if you're I cannot be called out not being the expert, you should be a depth first person. <laughs> and so if you want to be a PhD in a narrow subject, that means you do depth first, right? <laughs> if you are a journalist, you're a breadth person. <laughs> you have a lot of opportunities to move around. And then you have driving enabling. And driving means like the buck stops with you. Like you're the president, you're the leader of the community. You're the person that signs the papers and says, we do this. Mm -hmm. I will take the risk of it being wrong. Mm -hmm. Which that the risk you're facing in being that kind of person is that if you're great at this, you know that you will have to decide when you have only 80% of the data. Mm -hmm. So you will have to be the person that goes to bed at night, not knowing if you did the right decision, but protecting your own organization and sleep well at night. <laughs> I've decided I'll take the blame if it goes wrong. And certain people do that really well. And certain people really don't do that very well. <laughs> Enabling is a person that you're the wizard that whispers advice to the king or the queen. You say, like, sir, I would do this, I would do that. And if the king or the queen says, I don't want to do this, you just said, hey, I told them, what can I do, right? <laughs> and some people, they love that feeling because they feel like they can afterwards says, I told you so. But some people <laughs> hate that feeling because they get so frustrated that they feel like, if I could just sit at the steering wheel. So mm -hmm. I think that like these two by two coordinates, you can ask yourself, not what you want, but what you want to avoid. You want to avoid being in the situation, you're at McKinsey, you tell the client you should do this, and you see them squandering an opportunity, and you just get so irritated. That means you have to move from enable to drive. That means you should start your own. If you feel like you're right now working in, I don't know, in uh, banking, and you really feel frustrated that you're not working with nature and Bitcoin and well, like you have five subjects. You should ask yourself, is there a way I can move out of like banking is very wide, of course, but you know what I mean? Like you're working in a depth area. Is there a way you can move yourself to breadth where you can be like all of these four? So I think that's a way of applying yourself. And this, again, I'm not even saying if this is STEM or humanities or whatever, it doesn't matter. That's like a whole other matter. And that's just super hard to figure out what you want to do. But I think just trying to figure out which situations you really want to avoid and where you feel you can apply yourself best, that's going to help you so much to just figure out if you're in the right room. That's amazing. I feel like even whether or not you're a 20, 20 something or a 30 something, 40 something, wherever you are, that's some <laughs> very valuable life advice and the ways to think about things, Hampus. I, gosh, I appreciate that. I feel like everyone's drawing that quadrant now. Of, what are these things? Yeah, Hampus, I feel like we've, already had a great show and it's definitely been totally different to our normal episode because I've just let you talk and I've not had to say a, almost a thing and I feel like any time me speaking on this is just wasted time what I would <laughs> no. love to do is to just wrap up with where can people find more of you because I am sure if anyone's listening to this they want to hear more happens they want you to be one of their five people in their life <laughs> I think that the, the easiest way to find me is on Twitter or on my blog and so both of them are H A J A K. So five letters. Okay, so okay. Hampus Jacobson. And so I'm H A J A K on Twitter, and my blog is H A J A K dot S E. So what I find also very interesting about Twitter as a medium, 
and like Twitter is now, it's a scandalous medium in many shapes and forms. <laughs> but I think what's very interesting is essentially you have a weird mix between somebody's inbox and, and somebody's blog, right? So what's really interesting is I don't understand why like people should really curate who they follow on Twitter and really think about if they find a person interesting, they should not only read their quote unquote blog posts, but they can also interact with them, right? Mm -hmm. Which is really fascinating because a lot of people actually just respond to. If you kind of ask a question, they might respond. And that's how yeah. you have a dialogue with somebody. And I think that's some, something that people should just do more. A hundred percent. It's definitely, it is incredible, isn't it? When you just try and reach out to someone. Twitter is an incredible mechanism for connecting people without too many barriers. It's remarkable leveling for people to connect with the people they admire and find fascinating. Yeah, I might do that with you when I start following you. Go after this. <laughs> and I mean, thanks a lot for doing this, James. I think that podcasts are also a really great way. I think that generally, because podcast is one of my favorite tools also of learning. Like when you do a podcast, the cool thing is you can start a podcast about any subject and interview people. That means that you can actually ask them questions, right? It's way easier. If somebody says, can I get 30 minutes of your time to talk to you versus can I get 30 minutes to record your time and actually then have other people also to listen to it. It's a really good way of being able to talk to people. And I think that it's back also to spreading knowledge and thoughts. I think it's a really great way to kind of figure out that room you want to be in. So, I mean, thanks a lot for doing this. I think it's great you're doing it. Thank you, Hambus. Honestly, that's a big reason why we do these, actually. Like, I know that there's so many wonderful people like yourself who I probably wouldn't be able to get 30 minutes just chatting one-to-one. -one. To be able to record it, to be able to share this with so many other people and hopefully inspire other people, drive people to some sort of action and find out more about themselves from this episode, for sure. I think it's just incredibly fulfilling. Thank you so much, Hambus. I think we'll call that a show and hopefully see you soon. Thanks, okay. Thank you. <laughs>